0: Let me invite you to take out your Bibles and turn them open to Mark chapter 11. And again, this week represents a significant week in the life of our country, as we will on Tuesday be electing our 44th president, our 44th commander-in-chief. And when that happens, some people are going to be very excited. Other people are going to be very devastated. In any case... At some time and on some level, I believe all people will ultimately be disappointed. And I say that not because I'm a pessimist. You see, I'm a follower of Jesus. As a follower of Jesus, pessimism can't fit in my heart. It can't fit in my worldview. We are not pessimistic people. But as a follower of Jesus, I'm free to be a realist. And what that means is I can engage the world as it is. And I can be real about the condition of the world, but I'm not just a realist in my fellowship of Jesus. I am a hopeful realist. I am a hopeful realist who understands that as I engage the world that is, I am doing so in anticipation of the world that is to come. Now, you have not heard me endorse a candidate. You haven't heard me say anything about who to vote for and what candidate we should be about in this election. And that's because I I don't believe it's my role to endorse a candidate. As a follower of Jesus and as a pastor of this church, it is my role to endorse a worldview. What I'm here to do is to endorse a worldview and a way of life that centers on the kingship of Jesus in the kingdom of God. That's what I'm going to zero in on. That's what I pray your heart would be uh, enamored with as we think about the days that is to come. Because if we lose sight of that, or because of that, understand that no election will ever satisfy me. And ultimately, no election in this world will ever satisfy you. No politician, no personality, no political campaign or party's platform will ever square entirely with the kingdom of God. And so let me encourage you as we step into this week to be very careful that you do not tie your hopes too firmly to a specific candidate, to a specific campaign, to a specific political party. Let me encourage you as followers of Jesus to remember you are a sojourner. This world is not your home. Yes, you love this world. You live in this world. You love this world for the sake of the world that is to come. But understand, you are a sojourner traveling through this world, eagerly anticipating the world that is to come. And so regardless of the outcome on Tuesday, regardless of the outcome on Tuesday, remember who you are, Christian. Regardless of the outcome, remember where your chief allegiance lies. Your chief allegiance does not lie with either political party. Your chief allegiance does not lie with either political candidate. Your chief allegiance does not lie with a governmental system, whether it's called the United States of America or any other nation from which you come. Your chief allegiance does not lie there. And regardless of the outcome, Christian, remember the law of Christ, which is love. And the law of Christ that is love, understand that that love applies not simply to your neighbor. It also applies to those you may consider to be your enemies because they punched a different ticket. The law of Christ governs us, and we love those around us, whether we agree with them politically or not. So be careful how you engage in those conversations. Don't engage them in such a way that betrays your identity as a follower of Christ and your citizenship in the kingdom of God. So we consider those thoughts this evening as we turn our attention to Mark chapter 11. Because in the midst of all the chaos that has characterized this year's campaign, God in his providence and in his wisdom, this was an accident on my part. We just happened to be falling. I didn't realize this passage was falling on this Sunday. But God in his providence puts us in a passage that draws our attention to and our affections for the king that we need. He, a passage that zeroes us in on who Jesus is and, and what it means for him to be king. This is how the passage begins in verse 1. It says, Now when they, that they refers to a large crowd. At this point in time, a large crowd of people have started following Jesus towards Jerusalem. This crowd of people that includes the 12 disciples, but it includes a lot more. They're walking with Jesus towards the city. They're going to Jerusalem, and and up to this point, Jesus has spent about three years ministering in about 35 different locales, different locations. So His reputation has spread far and wide. Many people are interested in Jesus. Many people are enthusiastic about Jesus. So this crowd of people have rallied behind Jesus, and Jesus has orchestrated things in such a way that this moment comes at just the right time. He's entering Jerusalem at the beginning of Passover, Passover is the chief festival in the life of the people of Israel. This is the most important time of the year for the Jewish nation and the Jewish people. And he knows this and he's engaged. He's entering Jerusalem fully aware of what this season and what this time represents. Now, when you read through Mark's gospel and you compare it to the other gospels, Matthew, Luke, and John, you're gonna, you, you may not find prior to this moment a lot of overlap. Mark tells stories that aren't included in Matthew. Luke tells stories that aren't included in Mark. John tells stories that aren't included in Luke and vice versa. All leading up to this moment, to this point. And all of the gospels include just kind of a survey of three years of ministry that Jesus engaged promoting and proclaiming his kingdom up to this moment. But when Jesus turns his attention to entering Jerusalem, this is where you begin to see symmetry. This is where you begin to see continuity. This is where things slow down. In Mark's gospel, three years of ministry comprises ten chapters. But the last five chapters, from this point all the way to the end of the book, one week. Mark is zeroing us in on what is ultimately important for us as followers of Jesus. And all the gospel writers do that. Jesus approaching Jerusalem, he's getting ready to fulfill the purpose for which he has come. And a large group of people are traveling with him on this And when you see in verse 9 that everyone's excited that as he's entering Jerusalem, people are beginning to cry out and to celebrate his arrival. They're starting to suspect that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the expected king to come. And so they're crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. That word Hosanna means save now. The crowd is clamoring for a king who'd bring salvation. They're clamoring for a king to save. They've placed their hope in Jesus. This is an exuberant and enthusiastic time. But if you compare this account with Luke's account, Luke tells us about a conversation that happens right after the people cry this out towards Jesus the Pharisees and the scribes step up and they actually tell Jesus to tell his disciples to pipe down, quiet down. They shouldn't be hollering that in that way. They shouldn't be ascribing that title and that power and that importance to you. And and then Jesus turns to the To the Pharisees in Luke chapter 19, and he answers them, I tell you, if these people shut up in this moment, if they got silent now, I tell you the very rocks will begin to cry out. Jesus understands the gravity and the epic nature of this entrance into Jerusalem. And what we begin to see just echoed in the hearts and the hopes of these people. You kind of see a mirror into your own life and into our lives that we ultimately are all clamoring for a king. We are all clamoring for a king in different ways, shapes, or forms. We want kings in our lives to be able to do certain things for us. And not unlike the people clamoring for a king in this passage, we do so because we hope for deliverance. We clamor for a king because we hope for deliverance. We we want to coronate someone or something who can deliver us from our oppressors, who can deliver us from our undesirable situations. We want a king who can bring deliverance. But not only do we clamor for a king because we hope for deliverance, we do so because we hope for security. We want a king who can secure his kingdom. We want a king who can secure his people. We want a king who can be, who can provide security for us. And we understand that when a king is able to bring deliverance and when a king is able to bring security, that king will also bring peace. We clamor for a king because we hope for peace. This is why all the peoples on the earth clamor for kings and rulers and deliverers. We we want someone or some system or some thing to deliver us, to secure us, and to provide peace for us. And as you and I begin to hope for those types of things, when we begin to hope for deliverance, security, and peace in the world that is Unfortunately, what happens is that you and I find ourselves often ruled by unworthy kings. We find ourselves ruled by unworthy kings looking to the wrong people, places, and things to deliver us, secure us, and to establish peace for us. You've seen a glimpse of this in various ways as we've journeyed through the gospel of Mark. We've seen people... uh, ruled by unworthy kings all throughout this gospel let me just give you a survey of a few of the ways in which we've seen this happen and a few of the ways in which this happens in our own hearts and our own minds right now if you look back in mark chapter 6 we're introduced to a guy named king herod king herod that when mark uses that phrase for herod and he calls him a king understand that it's kind of tongue-in-cheek herod wasn't a king Herod was more like a governor who was only in charge of about a quarter of the of the area that his father Herod the Great ruled. But when Herod the Great ruled, when Herod the Great died, he divided up his rule into four quadrants and he gave each one quadrant to each of his four sons. And Herod is one of those Kings And so one of those rulers, one of those governors. And so in Mark chapter 6, you get a picture of how sometimes our unworthy rulers take the form of our Herods. And what Herod represents for us is the illusory nature of greatness. The mirage of greatness that is projected by so many people in the world that is. And you have in Herod a person who occupied perhaps a position of greatness, but when you read Herod's story in Mark chapter six, you find someone who was far from great. In Mark chapter six, you find a man who was a schemer and a manipulator. You find a man who was a people pleaser. You find a man who would murder John the Baptist because John the Baptist spoke out against his way of life that contradicted the rhythms appropriate for the kingdom of God and for what God desires for his people to do. That's the kind of greatness, the kind of Herod that we have. Now, one of the ways this, I think, impacts us today as we consider these unworthy kings that sometimes rule our lives, we too have our Herods, we too have our politicians that we look to to provide deliverance, security, and peace, we too have our political parties and our ideologies and our governmental systems, and we place our hopes in those Herods to deliver us and to secure us and to give peace to us. And we even see echoes of this, not only in the political realm and in the political world and just the climate that we're in today. You see this even in the American culture and in the American society. You find this This clamoring for a king and this being ruled by unworthy kings when you just examine our infatuation with things like celebrities and sports teams and the way in which... When we celebrate the victories of our teams, we do so because it pulls us out of a sense of the mundane. It delivers us from a feeling of inadequacy or being in a losing state and putting us into a winning state. You see how the fans of the Chicago Cubs just went nuts filling the streets of Chicago to celebrate their World Series after a 108-year drought. You saw the effect that that had on a city, this type of Herod that lifted this People, this city out of the mundane, out of the history of loss that they have been accustomed to. This impulse, I think, beats within us all where we look to our various types of Herods to bring deliverance and to give us security and to bring a sense of peace to our lives. And, but not only do you see it in Mark chapter 6, when you just find a guy like Herod present in the narrative, you move into chapter 7 and you see how sometimes for some people, We find ourselves ruled by the unworthy king of our traditions. Mark chapter 7. You see this example played out in the life of the Pharisees and the scribes. And they're engaged in a conflict with Jesus. And Jesus calls them out for their hypocrisy. Listen to what he says in verse 6. And he says to the religious leaders. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written. This people honors me with their lips. But their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. Teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he says, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. You see in there this impulse, how sometimes people are ruled by the unworthy ruler, the unworthy king of their traditions. This happens a lot today when you find people who are looking to yesteryear or to yesterday to be reestablished. They don't like the changes that are taking place in a neighborhood or the changes taking place in a city. Or the changes taking place in a country. And for them, their solution isn't so much to look to the living God to guide them through the changes. Instead, they look to their traditions and the restoration of their traditions and the restorations of what they're familiar with or accustomed to. Just bring those in, all will be well. Traditions can be good, but traditions are terrible gods. We don't want to be ruled by our traditions because traditions are terrible gods. And if a church or a people or a community of disciples find themselves ruled in this way, what'll happen is that group, that community, that church may risk may risk losing their, as we've talked about before, their saltiness, their piquancy. They lose what it means to engage the world that is as it is all in anticipation of the world that is to come. So you find an example there. Sometimes traditions become unworthy kings, but then you keep moving on into chapter eight and you see a moment here where perhaps the most common unworthy king that we're all tempted with is the king of self. This is what Jesus challenges. In chapter 8, you get into verse 34. Jesus makes that statement when he's calling his disciples, when he's establishing his kingdom. He's saying, this is what's required. This is what I'm going to, this is what the type of response you need to give to me. He calls to them, the crowd with his disciples and says to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So self-denial there, cross-bearing. Then he says, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. With those words, Jesus is contradicting the basic impulse of the human condition, this impulse to be ruled by self, to be self-determining people, self-governing people, to make the most passionate pursuit of our lives the discovery of self. And, And perhaps if we are ruled by self we're giving ourselves to this unworthy ruler this is this self-proclaimed monarchy that we have all established as a result of our fall from God's glory in Eden then you move on and you see a couple of more examples just to get the wheels turning you move into chapter 9 and you see another unworthy king there when it comes to our ambitions And we saw about all those awkward conversations that the disciples had with Jesus when they were aspiring for greatness and they were aspiring for certain uh, positions of status in the kingdom and and they were wanting greatness, they were wanting status. And then Jesus comes in and he flips the script and says, no, you you don't understand what greatness really is. You're subscribing to an illusion of greatness. You need to come be swept up into the rhythms of the kingdom of God that defines greatness in terms of service and sacrifice. And so ambition too can become an unworthy ruler because what happens when we are ruled by our ambitions, all of a sudden we're looking to those around us to serve us rather than to serve them. And that is an unworthy way of life. That is a way of life that contradicts the passions and the priorities of the kingdom of God. But then you move into chapter 10 and you see another example of an unworthy king there when you have the story of the rich young ruler. You have a man who's ruled by his money. You have a man when he hears the call to life that is to follow Jesus. And he's told, go sell all that you have and then come follow me. He's unable to do it. His heart is too attached to to the ability money has to deliver him from temporary problems. His heart is too attached to the sense of security that wealth can provide him. His heart is too attached to the sense of mental peace, of not having to worry about where his next meal is coming from or to worry about whether he will make rent. He's not worrying about any of those things because money and wealth has lured him into a false sense of deliverance, security, and peace. And yet he, in that exchange, he turns and he walks away from Jesus sad. He doesn't realize that Jesus is the king that he needs And so you consider just those examples, and there's a lot more that we could just kind of pan back and explore together on. But let me just ask you the question, what unworthy king is ruling your hopes right now? What unworthy king or kings are ruling your hopes for deliverance, your hopes for security, your hopes for peace And as you identify those, I want you to bring those to your mind so that hopefully tonight as you look into Mark 11, you begin to see how we find in Jesus the king that we need. You're willing to to repent of those kings. You're willing to turn your back on those kings. You're willing to turn from those kings and to square your faith up to put your hope in the king that we all need, who is Jesus, which this passage is designed to show us. Because as you journey through this passage and you begin to see what Mark is doing in Mark chapter 11, he's revealing how Jesus is the king that we need and he's doing it in a mind-blowing way. He's doing it in such a way that shows us four things about Jesus being the king that we need. The first thing he shows us in this passage is that Jesus is the anticipated one. Jesus is the highly and you might say hotly anticipated one. He is the one who has come to fulfill all of God's plans, all of God's purposes, all of God's promises laid out and foreshadowed all throughout the Old Testament. One of the most fascinating dynamics of the Bible is that it is one long story that is united together under the banner of redemption in Jesus, under the banner of the kingdom of God or the kingship of God that is Jesus. The whole story of the Bible unfolds in that direction. And if you just pay attention to the narrative thrust of the scriptures and how all the scriptures come together to tell this one story, you are cued into this Mind-blowing, heart-swelling, hope-installing reality that Jesus is the king that we need. He is the anticipated one that has come to do something for us that we cannot do for ourselves. This anticipation began in Genesis chapter 3, not long after Adam and Eve sinned and they distrusted God. They did not believe God is good and that God is trustworthy. They, they decided in a moment to listen to the serpent who had slithered in and he began to cast doubt upon the character of God and cast doubt upon God's love for them and God's kindness towards them. And that seed of doubt gave, bore the fruit of disobedience and faithlessness. And so they took from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and they ate the fruit. And immediately after that, Adam and Eve, although at one point they were naked and, sh- uh, naked and unashamed in the garden, just living life as it should be, they Everything changed in an instant. They ate the fruit and it says their eyes were opened and suddenly they felt shame. Suddenly they felt guilt. Suddenly they felt fear. And the next time they heard the familiar steps of God walking in the garden in their midst, they went and they hid from God. But there's a moment where God calls him out of hiding, and he discovers, and he knows full well what what just went down, and so he's divvying out some consequences. He's saying, look, because you haven't trusted me, because you have not done what I said to do, things are going to change. And then he laid out uh, some curses that will now come upon them and upon the world that is. And so he talks to the woman. He explains things that are going to be difficult for her now. He talks to the man, and he explains how things are going to be difficult for him now. And then he turns to the serpent and he talks to the serpent as well. And he makes a statement in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that there's coming a day when a seed, a child is going to be born from a woman and this child is going to crush your head. Genesis chapter 3, three, fifteen, 15, just dropping that seed, that, that moment of anticipation that somebody's going to come to set everything that Adam and Eve made wrong. He's coming to set it all right. And then the story of the Bible unfolds and you fast forward to Genesis chapter 12. You have a moment where God appears to a man named Abraham and he calls to Abraham and he says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to bless the world through you. He said, you're going to have a child, which was a shocking declaration for Abraham to hear because Abraham was, well, he wasn't a spring chicken anymore. He, he was uh, pushing 90 and he and his wife hadn't had kids before. Now God's telling them they're going to give birth to a child in some miraculous fashion and And this child is going to be somehow through this child. God is going to bring a blessing to all the peoples on the earth. He's going to reverse the curse that fell upon the world after Genesis chapter 3. And Abraham hears that and he believes that. And then the story moves on in anticipation of the seed who was promised in Genesis 3.15. Who was talked about in Genesis 12 and, and Genesis chapter 15. And then Abraham and his wife give birth to a son named Isaac. And then Isaac gives birth to a son named Jacob. And then Jacob gives birth to about 12 sons. And everybody's wondering at one, at some point in time, one of these sons got to be that guy. One of these sons has to be the guy that's going to set everything right. But the problem is these sons kept dying. They kept dying. And, and it came to the point where Jacob, who received the same promises that his father Isaac and his grandfather Abraham had received. He's on his deathbed and he has his 12 sons come to him. And he takes this moment to bestow a blessing upon them. And there's this moment where Jacob is blessing his 12 sons and he's making some promises to them. He's prophesying some things. And when he got to one of his sons, a son whose name was Judah, this is what he said. He tells Judah in Genesis 49 verses 10 through 11 that the scepter, this, this kingly image, the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of all the peoples. He says, Coming from the tribe of Judah, from the line of Judah, there's coming a king, and to him shall be the obedience of all peoples, the blessing of all peoples. Then the story continues, but that that seed, that, that, that person from the line of Judah had not yet appeared, and you get into About 1 Samuel, just fast forwarding forwarding a lot, there comes a point where all of Abraham's natural and physical descendants are eventually brought into Egypt where they're slaves for a while and then God miraculously delivers them and and Passover happens, which is what everyone is celebrating in Jerusalem in Mark chapter 11. He delivers his people. he, He brings them into the promised land and as the people are in the promised land, they're looking around at all the nations around them and they're saying, well, they've got kings, they've got kings, they've got kings. We don't have a king And they say, God, will you give us a king? And they start clamoring for an earthly ruler who would give them deliverance, security, and peace. Of course, God did not want to give them a king. He wanted the people of Israel to be distinct from all the surrounding nations. And so at first, he wanted to set it up that way. But the people kept clamoring. And so God gave them what they want, and they wound up with Saul. The problem with Saul becoming the first king of Israel is that Saul came from the tribe of Benjamin, one of Jacob's other sons. So he didn't come from the right line. And Saul, yes, at points he was a good king, but his kingdom eventually deteriorated, and he did not do a good job. And when Saul was removed from kingship, uh, God sought to provide another king, and you move into 2nd chapter Samuel, or 1 Samuel, you have this moment where Saul fails, and then God provides another king, only this king comes from a tiny village called Bethlehem. And this king would come from a man named Jesse's home, which, who was of the tribe of Judah. And this king who Was anointed and appointed by God to be the ruler of Israel to bring them deliverance, security, and peace. This king's name was David. And he was a surprising choice because he wasn't like his older brothers. He wasn't rugged and handsome and strong and burly. He wasn't kingly in his stature. He was the youngest of the sons. He didn't even get to come to the first meeting where the prophet was trying to find who the next king would be. He was left out because he wasn't even considered. But then Samuel, the prophet said, go get David, bring him in. We're going to. And then once he saw David, God said, that's my guy. That's who's going to rule my people. And so David then is anointed king and eventually he assumes his kingship, his reign, his rule over the people of Israel. And and then towards the end of his reign in 2 Samuel chapter 7, David's about to die. And and his son Solomon is about to assume kingship. The kingdom is going to pass along his lineage. And there's a moment in 2 2 Samuel chapter 7 where God makes a promise to David. Look, I'm going to establish your reign and your rule and it's going to be an eternal kingdom. I'm going, to, I'm going to make an eternal kingdom. And he begins to echo the promises that were once made to Judah. Echo the promises that were once made to Jacob and Abraham. Echo the promises that were once made to Adam and Eve in the garden. That from the tribe of, ben- from the tribe of Judah, from David's lineage, a king is going to come who's going to set everything right. And this excited everyone. This heightened everyone's anticipation for this person to come. And then you move into the Psalms. And a lot of the Psalms were ascribed to David. They were songs that he wrote in worship to his God. And what's amazing about some of these Psalms, you take Psalm chapter one and Psalm two, David, you hear him singing songs that anticipate the arrival of his descendant, that anticipate the arrival of God's son, of the son of David who would come and set everything right. This son who would rule the nations and you get into Psalm 110 and there's a moment where David is rejoicing that God is going to send a king. And and then he makes clear in Psalm 110 that this king is also going to be an eternal priest and this eternal priest is going to rule the nations. So you see it echoed and anticipated in the Psalms and then you get to the prophets where you start reading the books titled After Guys with Strange Names. Isaiah, not so much, but you get into like Hezekiah and Zechariah and those types of names, like maybe so. But Isaiah, for example, you get into Isaiah's writings and he heightens this anticipation as well. He prophesies in Isaiah chapter 9, a child will be born to God's people and a son will be given. And this king will rule forever as a wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Then you read through Isaiah's book and you come into chapter 11. And this same child who would become a king, this king would come from the root of Jesse. He, he's going to come and he's going to be a beacon. He's going to be a light that's going to bring hope and deliverance and security and peace to all the peoples on the planet. And this is prophesied there. Then you turn the corner and you get into Jeremiah. You hear Jeremiah saying similar things that there's coming a king who's going to save God's people. Move into Ezekiel. You have a description where the king is going to come and he's going to be shepherd over God's people. He's going to lead God's people into peace, Ezekiel would say. Then you get into the minor prophets, a guy like Amos, in Amos chapter nine, verse 11, who tells us there's coming a king who, who will restore the fortunes of God's people, a king who will establish the fortunes of God's people forever, echoing everything that has come before him. And then most notably, perhaps, you step into Zechariah. And in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, this anticipation reaches, in some ways, a climax with these words. Zechariah tells his readers, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Get this. Humble and mounted on a donkey. Humble and mounted on a donkey, written about 500 years before Jesus's entrance into Jerusalem. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. When you step into Mark chapter 11, you're supposed to see how Jesus is the anticipated one. He's the one that all of the history recorded in the Old Testament was longing for and hoping would come to do what God said he would do hoping that he would come and bring ultimate deliverance, ultimate security, and ultimate peace to the world. This is all being laid out in Mark chapter 11, as you find here about 11 verses, and six of them are talking about a cult, and you're wondering, what's the big deal? Why is Jesus paying so much attention to a cult? Well, he's paying attention to a cult because he is the anticipated one. He arranges things, he foreknows the situation, whatever the case may be, Jesus is intentionally showing himself to be the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament's anticipations, all of their promises, all of the Old Testament's predictions, and he is the the anticipated one. Now what's surprising about this to some degree is that when Jesus enters Jerusalem, he does so, yes, on a colt as prophesied, but he doesn't enter Jerusalem on a, a war horse. He doesn't enter Jerusalem in a way that many Jews might have expected their Messiah to come because they, some had expected him to come and he would drive out the Romans and establish the nation of Israel in that space and in that time. And, and Jesus is showing, no, I'm coming on a colt and a colt's not very fast if we're in battle, right? It's quite far cry from the Pope mobile. if you've seen the Pope driving through city streets and bulletproof glass and those types of things, that Jesus is on a colt and he's entering Jerusalem as the anticipated one saying, yes, I am the king that you guys have been waiting for. But the way my kingdom is going to be enacted, the way my kingdom is going to be inaugurated is in a way that you're not going to expect. You see this anticipated one that is being, that our attention is being drawn to with these actions and with these words, this this anticipated one is also the, whole, the sovereign one. He's the sovereign one. This is what's so remarkable about this situation. Jesus demonstrates a precise knowledge of what's going down and he's exercising his sovereignty. He's showing that he's in complete control of this situation, which is so- shocking when you know that this isn't so much a triumphal entry as it is a death march. That Jesus isn't entering to wage war against the Romans. He's entering on the back of a cult to wage war against the ultimate oppressors of humanity. Namely, sin, Satan, and death. But to do that, this sovereign one who comes humble and mounted on a donkey will also be the subversive one the subversive one because he's going to establish in his his kingdom in a way that all the people who were clamoring for his kingship, who were hoping in Jesus, he's going to establish it in a way that they did not get, a way that they did not expect. You see this when you drop down to verse 11 and you have this instance where Jesus enters Jerusalem and he walks into the temple, the place where all the sacrifices occur, the place where God's people were supposed to meet with God, especially during Passover week. He enters the temple and it says he looked around at everything as it was already late. And then he went out to Bethany with the twelve. He comes in calmly, quietly, subversively. He looks around and then he walks out. You might describe this as the calm before the storm. And in the next chapters, you're going to see what Jesus does in the temple. You're going to see the way in which Jesus subverts all the things that are happening in the temple in this moment. You're going to see Jesus exercising and establishing a being a subversive king by establishing his kingdom in a way that earthly kings know nothing about. He's going to establish it not through pomp, and power, and might, he's going to establish it through the subversion of sacrifice, of death, of submission. He's, he's the subver, sub sub. Verse of one, And the people in this passage, I don't think quite get it. You see this in verse 9 when, yes, they're crying out this incredible declaration. Hosanna, save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. They're, they're, this is true in part about Jesus. But what they're doing when they make that statement, they are quoting Psalm 118. And Psalm 118 was a psalm regularly read and shouted by people as they entered Jerusalem during this time of year. But when you see Jesus as the subversive one, you are to hear those words, but don't miss what these people are missing, it seems. Because this salvation that's going to come through the line of David, the tribe of Judah, the salvation, the deliverance, security, and peace is going to come from him. It's not going to come the moment he enters Jerusalem and declares everything right. It's going to come because something will happen to this guy. Something will happen to this king, which is why. Just hold your spot in Mark chapter 11. Turn back to Psalm 118. Let me show you what the people aren't getting in this passage. They're celebrating the arrival of the king. They're celebrating the potential that this king is bringing into Jerusalem for all of their hopes to be fulfilled. But Jesus is the subversive one. He's going to do things in a way that they did not expect. Something's going to happen to him. And you see this in Psalm 118. You see, that verse, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, that is found in verse 26. That is found towards the end of the psalm. And it says, we bless you from the house of the Lord. And then it goes on to celebrate the Lord is God and he has made his light to shine upon, upon us. You have this celebratory declaration. But what did they skip? What did they run past? What, are they, what might they not get? Well, that's found when you go up and you read verse 22. And you discover how Jesus is going to establish his kingdom. You discover how Jesus is going to fulfill all the plans, promises, and purposes of God. How he's going to bring deliverance, security, and peace. It's going to come not because he entered Jerusalem and everybody was celebrating. It's going to come because of what would eventually happen, which is again prophesied in verse 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus is going to enter Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, he will be rejected and cast aside. But his rejection, his being cast to the side will become the chief cornerstone. That will be the foundation upon which God's kingdom is built in the world. The foundation of God's kingdom in the world that is, is the rejection and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. That is the foundation of our hope. That is the source of our deliverance, our security and there, our peace. That is what enables us to become hopeful realists in the world that is. We can deal with the world as it is without shrinking back or being overwhelmed by fear and frustration. We can deal with the world that is because our hope is in a God who suffered and died like all of us will do if Christ does not return. There's coming a day when you will suffer and you will die. But your hope is in the fact that Jesus came. He suffered and he died. Ultimately, to deliver you from your suffering and your death. Ultimately, to deliver you from all that assails the world that is. To heighten your joy in the world that is to come and the reason we know this is because this stone that the builders rejected the one that was cast away the one that was crucified after being crucified he did not stay dead all the other descendants of david died and stayed dead every one of them 100 percent, but not jesus Jesus is the unique son of David. David, Jesus is the one who fulfills Psalm 118, not because he entered Jerusalem and everybody celebrated his arrival. Jesus fulfills Psalm 18 because he was rejected. He was cast to the side. He's the subversive one who brings his kingdom through sacrifice, through death, through atonement. And after doing that, three days later, this Jesus would rise from the grave. He would rise and he is reigning. This Jesus has come, according to Sinclair Ferguson, to take his throne, but he has committed himself to begin his reign from the cross. And because of that, this Jesus becomes the worthy one. Because Jesus did that, he is the worthy one. He is the king our hopes should cling to. He is the one who is both capable and kind enough to deliver us from our sin, to deliver us from our sufferings, to deliver us from death. He is the one who is capable and kind enough to do that. This is the worthy one who is Jesus. This is the king that we fix our hopes upon. Now, I said that the story of the Bible is one long story, and it all centers around this dynamic of, the kingship of Jesus and the kingdom of God who's come to deliver us and to secure us and to give us peace. Well, just hold that thought and turn over to Revelation chapter 5, and I'm going to show you why we can become hopeful realists in the world that is. Revelation chapter 5, you come to the end of the story. Revelation is a complicated book to be sure, but it is a book that a man named where God gave a guy named John, one of the apostles, one of the disciples who walked with Jesus into Jerusalem. He gave this guy a glimpse of the end, showing him where the world is heading, showing him how the kingdom of God is going to be consummated and fulfilled one day. And you get into Revelation chapter five and there's a moment where people are are uh, upset. They're having a hard time because there's this scroll and the scroll has seven seals and and this scroll has to be opened in order for salvation to be completed for deliverance and security and peace to be established. And then you look at verse 5, and because everyone's upset, because nobody is worthy enough to open this, no king or ruler can accomplish that purpose. Verse 5, look at what it said. John, the, John sees this, and one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered The root of David has conquered. How has he conquered? Through his crucifixion and through his resurrection. That makes him worthy to establish this realm of salvation. That makes him worthy to establish the kingdom of God that will be one day fully realized in the world. The kingdom of God that will come and Make all things new fully and finally. This is why you drop down in verse of chapter 5 to verse 9. This is why, get this in verse 9. Listen to what's going on in this moment. Everyone who observed this, who saw this, the angels, everyone else who were the elders who were witnessing this strange moment to be sure, but listen to what they're singing. It says in verse 9, they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed. Remember Mark? Remember Jesus saying, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to, but to give his life as what? As a ransom for many? There's the language again. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. From every tribe, language, and people, and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. Jesus is the worthy one because he's the only one who can do that. Jesus is the king that we need because he's the only one who can deliver us from that which assails all of us our sin, our spiritual enemy. And the death that awaits us. So we put our hope in him. And as we do so, we deal with the world that is realistically. We deal with the world that is without being pushed back and knocked over by every change that happens in the culture or the government or anything that we might, any unworthy king that may fail us who's unable to deliver us and secure us and to give us peace, we put our hope in this Jesus who is worthy because he's the only one who can do this. And there's coming a day when this king returns and we all join with what's taking place in Rome, Revelation chapter 5, we begin to sing, worthy are you, worthy are you, worthy are you, worthy are you. And as we know, we will sing that one day. We live our lives in the world that is saying, worthy are you, worthy are you, worthy are you. You are king. You are the one upon whom I put my hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would in these moments, would you stir within us insight into any unworthy kings that we may be ruled by in this moment. If we are tying our hope to any aspect of the created order too tightly, I pray that you would sever that tie, And that you would give us grace over these next few moments to tie our hope securely to Christ. I pray that we would find in Jesus the king we need. And I pray that we would be the types of people who live in such a way that honors Christ as king each and every day. God, we look forward to his return, and we pray for that, and we live and love towards that in Jesus' name.